Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Today we are turning to 1 Thessalonians. We are in chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11. And so I'm going to read the text for us, and then we're, uh, we're going to pray, and then jump in. Okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say, peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation." For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'd speak through the word this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak uh, through me as your vessel? Would you speak to the hearts of the listeners? Would you let your truth sink deep into our lives so that it becomes the defining part of who we are, so that we are a people defined by God's word. We are defined by God's love. We are defined by the resurrection life that only you can give us, Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we dig into your word today and as we seek to understand it, would you give us that understanding? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I'm sure as I was reading along those texts, you all were like, yeah, totally. Yeah, I get that. Like falling asleep, staying awake, darkness, light. Like what is, what is all this business? So uh, we're going to try and clear that up today as much as we can. I'm going I'm to try to be as clear as I can. Uh, but, but to start, I, I was hanging out yesterday with a guy, a fellow off-roader. And uh, he was at my house like buying some car parts and stuff that I have. And so we're talking and inevitably, as always happens, he asked me, what do you do? 
Um, and I said, well, I'm a pastor. And uh, first, there was that initial silence that follows when I answer that question. You know, people don't know what to do with that. Like, not many people in the world spend time with a pastor normally. Uh, and so people don't often know what to do with that information. So then after a little while, we were talking about other car parts and stuff. He said, so what kind of church do you pastor? And I have no idea how to answer that question ever, right? I don't know what you know. I don't know what your history with the church is. I don't know what kind of background you got. I could be super theologically nerdy about this, or I could be like, we love Jesus. Like, I, I don't know. So I need your help with that, okay? Next time I'm asked, what kind of church do you pastor? I need some answers to give to people, okay? Uh, so I'm not going to be like, I pastor a congregational semi-reformed. Yeah, yeah no, it's not going not gonna to work. Um, so, so I was puzzling through the answer to that. And I thought, one of, one of the answers, what are the answers to that question? Like to someone who is not versed in all of this theology stuff, to someone who's not versed in all this denominational stuff, as most of the people in this room aren't. Like, most of you are not, like, at home nerdily Googling, like, congregational polity. It's not your thing, right? Um, and if, you, if it is your thing, let's talk. We, you, you need some more hobbies. Um, so, so, as I was thinking through, though, like, what is it? What kind of church are we? If I'm talking to someone who has no familiarity with churches, or with the gospel, or with the scripture. Like, what do I say to them? And I say, okay, we're, we're a church that loves Jesus. We're a church that loves people. And those are the two main things, right? Jesus said those are the main things, love God and love people. We want to be a community of pe people who love God and love people. But beyond that, what marks us out? And here's the thing I want to say, that I want to become more and more and more and more true for us as we continue on this journey together. I want to say that we're a church that believes solidly in resurrection. The resurrection of the dead and all that that means. Because at the very heart of the Christian faith is a God who loves you, died, and rose again for you. And if that piece is missing, if that resurrection piece is missing, then our faith is entirely empty. It is worthless and pointless, and we should give it up. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead and promise to do the same for you and for me, then let's give up on this thing. We need to walk away. If this is just some nice moral thing that we do to make us better people, let's not do it. There are plenty of other places to get that. There's plenty of self-help stuff out there that I could invest in that is not as costly as following Jesus if following Jesus is just a program for self-improvement. So at the heart of the Christian faith is the rock-solid conviction that Jesus was a human being who rose from the dead, and he's promised to do the same for you and for me. And so if we hold fast to those three things, love God, love people, and believe in resurrection, hold tight to the resurrection, then we're well on our way to being exactly who God has called us to be. We hold tight to the resurrection. And that's what this text is about. Through all that confusing language and all that talk about sleeping and waking and day and night and all that, at the end of the day, what this letter is telling us is that God raised Jesus from the dead and he promises to do the same for you and for everybody you've ever lost who followed Jesus. Hold fast 
to the truth of resurrection. That's what the text is about today. Now, we're going to get into more details about it. But if that's all you hear, then what you need to know is that right at the bottom, at the very center of your faith, is a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Not as a metaphorical truth, not as some inspirational story, but as a rock-solid historical fact that happened to Jesus and that he promises will happen to you if you follow him. That's the hard center of our faith in Jesus. And that's where we are today. So here's what's going on that made the Apostle Paul write this letter. Just to catch you up, if you haven't been with us through this, this book, 1 Thessalonians, is a letter that a guy named the Apostle Paul, or a guy named Paul, wrote to a church that he helped found in a city called Thessalonica. And in the city of Thessalonica, the Christian church was really not welcome, either by the Jewish community or by the Gentile, that is non-Jewish community. People did not like this. If you were a Roman Gentile and you saw this new religious community coming up, you didn't like it because Rome didn't allow new religions. They were suspicious of new religions. If you had an ancient religion, they were happy to let you practice it or to incorporate your gods into their pantheon. But if you were starting a new one, they didn't like that, didn't approve of it. And if you were Jewish and someone came along preaching about Jesus, you thought they were messing with your faith, that they were ruining your faith, that they were heretics, and that they were dangerous. And so neither the Gentile community nor the Jewish community in Thessalonica was happy about the church because the Gentile community saw this as a new religion and the Jewish community saw this as destructive to their faith. And so the Christians in Thessalonica were struggling. They were suffering. But as we talked about in the past couple of weeks, this church that grew up in struggle, in suffering, Because of the suffering, they were so tight-knit. They loved one another incredibly well because they didn't have anybody else. It was just them. And their love overflowed in amazing generosity. Paul says, you were impoverished, but you gave. Like you were giving out of your poverty to the other churches in the region that were equally suffering. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul commends the Thessalonian church, or the Macedonian churches, which is where Thessalonica is, for giving to the suffering church in Jerusalem. He was taking up a collection. And he's telling the Corinthians, hey, you guys need to be like the Macedonians who gave out of their poverty to support their struggling brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So this is the church that exists here. They're struggling. They're having a hard time. It's been quite a few months since Paul was in Thessalonica starting this church. And since then, his buddies Silas and Timothy have come to visit Paul in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, and say, hey, Paul, here's what's happening in Thessalonica. And this letter is Paul's response to that. Now, in the many months since Paul was in Thessalonica, some Christians have begun to die. Not because of martyrdom, not because they were killed for their faith, but just because they were old. (laughs) People die for whatever reason. And the Christians who existed, the Christians who were still alive in Thessalonica, were beginning to be worried because Paul had taught them Jesus died, he rose again, and he's coming back. That was Paul's good news that he preached everywhere he went. And so he had told them, God came as Christ, he died, he rose again, he's king now, and one day he is returning. And when he returns, we will all be taken with him. In fact, he'll remake the world 
and we will be his kingdom, we'll be his people. And so these living Christians in Thessalonica were beginning to be worried because they were like, what if Jesus comes back and my brother's already dead or my grandfather's already dead? What happens to them when Jesus comes back? Are they going to be, are they going to miss out? Are they going to miss out on the rule of Jesus? Are they going to miss out on the reign of Jesus, on the return of Jesus? Will they get to, they don't get to celebrate because they're in the ground. They're dead. They've got no life anymore, right? They, they can't celebrate with the rest of us. So how is it good news that Jesus is coming back for the people who have already died who followed him? Where's the good news in that, Paul? And that's what this passage is about. That's what this part of the letter is about. It's about Paul sharing with the Thessalonian Christians how it's good news that Jesus is returning even for Jesus' followers who have died. And so that's where he begins here in chapter 4. And it points us to a truth that I've already shared with you. That the resurrection of Jesus is a promise of resurrection for you and for me. And that's pretty much explicitly what he says. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, i.e. those who have died, so that you'll not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Don't be like the Gentiles and the Greeks, and even some of your Jewish brothers and sisters who don't believe in an afterlife. There's hope. There is resurrection life for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died who are followers of Jesus. So don't grieve Because they're not gone. The life of Jesus is theirs too. And he goes on to say, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's saying, look, if they've they've died and were followers of Jesus, they're coming with him when he comes. When Jesus comes back, it's not like like they're going to miss out. They're going to beat you to it. Jesus is bringing them with him when he comes. The de- he goes on to say, the dead in Christ will rise first and meet him in the air and then come with him when he returns. Now, I have to address something here that's tricky for some people, okay? This is where the, the idea of the rapture comes in. You may have heard of the rapture if you followed any of the like popular end time stuff or any of the, yeah, popular end time stuff. If you've ever followed that, you know, if you read just popular Christian books about the end times, you get the sense that there's only one interpretation and one idea about how Jesus comes back and how the world ends. The problem is that that, that's not the truth. It's not been the majority truth in the church throughout history, and it isn't the majority position of the church today. It's just what's popular in the United States. So the idea that, like, some people get raptured up, just disappear, and they go to be with Jesus, and then there's this long, like, tribulation period, and then there's another period, and then Jesus comes back, and everything's good, that's not the majority view of the church, and never has been. The majority view of the church has always been that Jesus comes one time. When Jesus returns, that's it. So what's going on here? If, if we're not talking about people being snatched up and disappearing from the earth in the rapture, what is this really about? You see, in the ancient world, in, in this world, when a king or a conquering general would come home from war, everybody would come out 
to meet that king. Everyone would come out to meet that general. There would be a monster parade through the city or through the countryside, and everybody comes. Think of it when the Avs won the Stanley Cup, the parade that happened downtown. Like, that's the closest we get to this idea, right? Everybody is out to celebrate. It's a wild party when the king comes home, when the general comes home, and he is won, and he is victorious. And that's the image that we're supposed to have of the people meeting Jesus in the air. Those who have died in Christ, those who are resurrected, go to meet Jesus when he returns to the earth as the conquering king. When he returns to the earth as the victorious general of God's armies, the one who reigns and rules over all. He comes back and we celebrate. He comes back and we throw the wildest party that the earth has ever seen. That's the idea here. This is a joyous, joyous occasion when the dead in Christ, they're going to meet him as he comes back. And the rest of us are just going to be watching, waiting for him to get here because our king has come. Our savior is here. And that means the end of all pain and all evil and all wrong in the world. Finally, everything will be right and good and perfect because our king has returned. The light has come into the darkness and we party with Everybody who's ever followed Jesus from all time, everybody's there. If you don't like a crowd, I'm sorry. You're going to have to deal with it. It's going to be incredible. So Paul's trying to encourage. That's why he says, therefore, encourage people with these words. Any of you ever thought about the rapture with fear and trepidation? If If you've ever thought of the rapture before, not all of you are from the same place. But when I was a kid, and there was all the like left behind stuff was out there and all the popular um, stuff was out there. And I was imagining the, the rapture of, and people just disappearing. And I was like, oh, my God, what if I'm not one of them? I need to pray the sinner's prayer like every five minutes to cover any sin I might have done so that when Jesus comes back, I'll be raptured up and taken with him. And it built up so much fear in me. And I, I was born a Christian. I've never not followed Jesus. And yet the very idea that when Jesus comes back, some will be taken, some won't. It's a fearful thing. It's a scary thing, even for faithful followers of Jesus. God did not intend his truth to do that to us. And if there's ever a truth about God that is preached to you or taught to you that brings up anxiety and fear and you know you're a faithful follower of Jesus, it is right and good for you to question that. Maybe it's that you're out of line and out of step with God and this is his way of correcting you. Or maybe it's that it's a bad doctrine and you need to get rid of it. And so if you ever hear a truth about God that builds up with you anxiety and fear, you are right to examine it, to question it, to go to trusted authorities, to talk to your friends who are followers of Jesus and say, is this because something's not right in my life or is this because this is a bad, unbiblical doctrine? And I think the doctrine of the rapture that has caused so much fear is just that, a bad, unbiblical doctrine. And if you still believe that, I'm very sorry if I'm making you feel bad, but it's the truth of Scripture Paul says when he's talking about this idea of the dead in Christ rising and meeting Jesus in the air to come with him, this is to be an encouragement to you. It's to bring joy to you. Share this truth among one another as an encouragement. 
don't worry about your friends and loved ones who have died, who are followers of Jesus. They will be with him and you will meet them when you meet him when he comes back. They're having a better time than you are from now until forever. Don't worry. Don't let this cause anxiety for you. But then Paul goes on. Because he knows this is going to create more questions. I'm sure you have questions right now. What does it mean for Jesus to come back? What is going to happen? What is the whole idea anyway? Is this something new that came up with Jesus? Or was it always there in the scripture? Did God always plan this? Or did Jesus like come up with this idea? Did the church just make this up? Or has it always been there from the beginning? And Paul does us a great service by answering those questions now in chapter 5. And so... The resurrection of Jesus is a promise of, for us of resurrection and for every follower of Jesus through history of resurrection. We will rise again if we are followers of Jesus on the last day when Jesus returns. What's that day going to be like? What is this day of the Lord? And so Paul goes on in chapter 5. And he says, about the day of the Lord. Let me, let me tell you about the day of the Lord. You yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Whew. That's a lot, right? That sounds really scary. What's Paul talking about here? So he uses this phrase, day of the Lord. Day of the Lord shows up all over the prophets of the Old Testament. If you just search the phrase, day of the, like go to Bible Gateway and put in quotes, day of the Lord, and look at everything that comes up. It's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse, all through the prophets of the Old Testament. If you don't know what a prophet is, it's someone who speaks for God. God gives a prophet words, and then the prophet relays those words to the leadership or to the people. And so a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, the words that God has given them. And so all through the prophets of the Old Testament, there's talk of this day of the Lord. And in almost every case, the day of the Lord is a promise to God's people, to Israel and Judah, that one day God is going to rid the world of evil. One day God is going to come and save his people, save his nation by getting rid of all the wickedness and evil of the world, specifically of the nations that oppose Israel, of the nations that are at war with them or the nations who don't want them to exist. It's a promise to God's people that safety and security is coming. The day of the Lord is coming and God will bring judgment against all of Israel's enemies. Almost every reference is to that, except one place, except in Amos chapter 5. The prophet Amos talks about the day of the Lord in chapter 5. Only when Amos talks about the day of the Lord, he talks about it as a day of wrath for Israel. One day God is going to come and he's going to judge Israel for its sins. And in that passage in Amos, Amos plays on this imagery of darkness and light. It's the only time that the day of the Lord is mentioned in conjunction with this darkness and light imagery. All the darkness and light imagery that the Apostle Paul is bringing up right now in 1 Thessalonians. And so we know that when Paul talks about the day of the Lord, he's referring back to Amos chapter 5. I know this is dense, but I need you to follow me here. So we're going to go back to Amos chapter 5, if I can find it, because I didn't mark it this morning, and it's a tiny book. 
We're going to get there. We need to go back to Amos chapter 5 and read what the prophet says about the great day of the Lord. Because it's instructive for how we live as followers of Jesus and how we look forward to the day of the Lord that's coming. Amos chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 16 and read to 24. This is what the prophet Amos has to say to the people of God, to the nations of Israel and Judah. Therefore the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says, There will be wailing in all the public squares. They will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. This is the word of the Lord to his people about the day that he will come to judge his own nation. And what Amos is saying here is, look, Israel, you're doing all the right stuff in terms of your rituals. You're offering sacrifices, you're singing songs, you're coming to the temple. But you know what you're not doing? You're not caring for the poor. You're oppressing the foreigner among you. You're not lifting up those who have needs. You're putting people down. You're actually opposing God by opposing the weak people among you. And because you do that, and then you come want to sing to me, I won't hear it. It makes me sick. Normally, God talks about the sacrifices of Israel, the burnt offerings, as a fragrant aroma to himself. Like you would imagine a, a lamb shank on the grill or a great steak cooking outside, right? That's what the sacrifices of Israel are supposed to smell like to God. Like this banquet feast that the people are making to sit down at the table of God. God's like, that steak smells awesome. But the problem is, when you're mistreating one another, the problem is when you're hurting your brothers and sisters, when you're not upholding the weak, when you're oppressing the poor, when you're taking advantage of each other and stealing from one another legally, when you're doing all of this stuff to harm people, and then you come and bring that burnt offering, it smells like you're grilling a rotten steak. It's disgusting to me. I don't want it. I don't love it. And all of that singing is just noise in my ears. It's gross. It makes me want to throw up. God is saying, when you're doing all the right stuff religiously, but your heart is far from me and you're harming my people, you can't come and worship me like you love me. Because if you don't love my people, you don't love me, says the Lord God. That's what Amos is about. And I think the reason that the Apostle Paul picks up on this passage in 1 Thessalonians when he's writing to these Christians is because the main opposition to the church is coming from the Jewish community. The Jewish community that thinks it's righteous 
that thinks they're doing the right thing by oppressing the Christians, by trying to suppress the good news of Jesus. And Paul is writing from this passage because he wants them to know, look, even you who call yourselves the community of God, even you who call yourselves the chosen of God, will not escape God's judgment if you continue to oppress his people, if you continue to oppress his church. And it goes without saying that the judgment of God will fall on everybody else who doesn't follow Jesus. It goes without saying that God will judge all of the nations, that God will judge Rome and God will judge the Gentile community. That was always assumed. But Paul has to make it clear that even the people who are circumcised, who think that they're in with God, if they oppress followers of Jesus, they too will fall under God's judgment. The day of the Lord will be darkness for all of those who don't follow Jesus. For all of those who are not raised to new life in him. For all of those who have not given their lives to King Jesus and look forward to his, res- to his return. It will come like a thief in the night, totally unexpected. You won't have any warning. And Jesus will be here. And for those who aren't his followers, those who haven't repented their sin and followed him, that day will be a day of darkness and of judgment. But for the followers of Jesus, it will be a day of light and delight and of joy. For the follower of Jesus, it's something to look forward to, to long for. It's something to, something to put your hope in. You see, the, the day of the Lord that is coming in the New Testament has kind of a twofold meaning. One is, of course, the day that Jesus will return, the day that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the day that Jesus will come back and make all things right and rid the world of sin and make the world perfect and good and holy and the community of shalom and peace that God always wanted and intended for it to be. But the other meaning of the day of the Lord in the New Testament is the day that Jesus was crucified. The day that Jesus took our sin. The day of ultimate darkness in history. When all of our sin was laid on the body of Jesus as he hung upon a cross, dying and bleeding for our life. The day that all of God's judgment and wrath for sin fell on himself in his son Jesus. For those who follow Jesus, the day of the Lord, the dark day of the Lord, has already come in the day that Jesus was crucified. And so we have no darkness to look forward to, only light, only good. But for those who have not already found their life in that dark day, who have not already given their life to Christ and had their sin washed away, for those who are not followers of Jesus and haven't experienced the darkness of their sin being wiped away in the cross of Christ, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns is that dark day. This is the truth of the good news of Jesus. That the dark day of the Lord has already come. It's already happened. When God judged sin in the body of Christ on the cross. 
and gave us free access through his love to the resurrection life of Jesus. This is the good news. And to put the cherry on the top, it doesn't take you changing your life. It doesn't take any one of us cleaning ourselves up. It doesn't take us becoming righteous. It doesn't take us following a set of rules and a list of rules to make sure that God will love us. It doesn't take us coming to a temple and offering sacrifices because the sacrifice has already been made. It doesn't take us trying to work ourselves up and make us beautiful in God's eyes. Because when God looks at the followers of Jesus, he sees the beauty of Christ in us. On that dark day of the Lord, when Jesus took our sin once and for all on the cross, he paid for it all, for all time, forever. And there is no further sacrifice to be made. There's nothing more that we can do. Jesus has done it all. And so for us, when Jesus returns, it is a day of hope and of joy and of gladness and of celebration. It is the day to look forward to most. And in the meantime, Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 5, live in that light. Live in light of that truth. Live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, of the forgiveness of sins, in the holiness that you have through Jesus Christ. Live in the light of the God who loves you enough to have died for you and taken your sin and crucified it in his own body. Live in the light of that goodness and let your light shine before others so that when Jesus comes, it will be a day of joy and of celebration for them too. It is God's will that every person on this planet would have the return of Jesus be a joyous, brilliant day of celebration by turning their sin over to Christ and letting the dark day of the Lord be the day that Jesus was crucified on their behalf so that no one would experience the judgment of God, but all would receive his life and salvation and all would know the hope of his resurrection. And it's that resurrection life that we celebrate here in the cup and in the bread, in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's his death that paid for our sin, his reign as our king, and his return to bring us life that we celebrate when we partake of the body and blood of Jesus. And so today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and partake of the body and blood of Christ. We believe that the real presence of Jesus is present in this bread and this cup. Not that they become literal flesh and blood, but that it's something more than a symbol, that the presence of God is really and truly present in these elements when we take in into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus. And so we call this a means of grace, a means of receiving the grace of God into our body. And as more than a symbol, taking this in sustains us spiritually, Throughout the week, it's why we come week after week to this table to proclaim that we are those who have been bought with the body and blood of Jesus and we are those who live in his light and life looking forward to his return. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you.
In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Eat and drink 